The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. That food I brought home that I grew for me was the transformational piece of this. I mean, it sounds corny, but it's true. I started eating food that I was growing and it completely changed my eating habits. I started eating better. I started feeling better. I started taking better care of myself. I got through some personal stuff that I needed to get through. It just was a really great time in my life. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome back, episode 11. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Scott Massey of Helioponics and their fantastic GrowPod solutions. As a new CEO, Scott told a fascinating story of how he got started with the company and what he quickly had to learn on the job as interest in the GrowPod has picked up steam. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you check it out, episode 10. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Alex Tink. Alex is the president of Fork Farms, an organization that started on the principle that growing fresh and healthy food is a vehicle for positive change in the world. It's their belief that having consistent access to the freshest, highest quality food is a human right. In this interview, we discuss Alex's unorthodox path to entrepreneurship, hydroponic farming, and the impact COVID-19 has had on Alex's business, which has been a consistent thread throughout the season, given where we are in the world today. Alex talks about how he got involved in ag tech where he got his entrepreneurial drive from, and his experience moving to NYC, which we have a shared passion for. He breaks down the business model of Fork Farms, the curriculums they offer, and the idea behind the Flex Farm. We learn what Alex has discovered throughout his entrepreneurial journey in ag tech and the challenges and obstacles he's had to overcome as he continues to grow the team and the business. We talk a little bit about what excites him about the future of Fork Farms ag tech, and a tough question he's had to ask himself recently. As promised, here are a couple new reviews that came in the past few weeks. Thanks 
to Danana Split 617. Great name. I've listened to about four of these podcasts so far, and I've really enjoyed all of them. The speakers feel genuine, and their stories are fascinating. I'm using this podcast to, quote, learn the language of vertical farming so that I can hopefully transition into the space in the near future. Keep these podcasts coming. Thanks so much for that inspiring review. Tommy Wami writes, fascinating and diverse guests with great discussions, a significant source of information that just isn't available anywhere else. If you're enjoying this episode or you've enjoyed past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Alex. So Alex Sank, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me having a chat in the pre-call and I understand that this is your first podcast interview as well. So thanks for <laughs> allowing us to experience that. I've done some interviews in the past, but this is my first podcast. So yeah, uh, yeah. exciting. Thank you. Do you listen to any? Yeah, I've got my favorites just like everybody. I'm not a huge podcast junkie, but I can definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the the benefit of it, what I've seen, I've been doing it since 2014, is the uh, portability of it. So whenever I get some free time, if I'm making dinner, walking a dog, or just go out for a walk, and I was like, oh, I got to catch up on a couple of episodes, and I can just cue them up on uh, on my podcast player. And, and I'm actually listening at a higher speed now, so I can listen at like one and a half X, two X. You can get through more faster. Yeah, we just moved our offices, and uh, I've got a longer commute, so they've come in very handy. Yep. Yeah. Commutes are almost for a while there were, were a thing of the past, right? <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it feels good in a way to get a, at least a little bit of semblance of reality. So, so yeah, maybe that might be a, just a good place for add some context where you are towards the end of July. Still, I don't know whether this is considered phase 1.5 or phase two of COVID at this point. Uh, <laughs> we sort yeah. of like stumbled our way through this. So I'm wondering what, what was the impact initially for you and the company? What's been the, happening so far since then? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, it seems like generally affected people in the industry fairly well, which for me, there's a little bit of guilt that comes along with it, to be honest, just because there are so many people out there suffering and so many people where this has been really a difficult challenge. But at least at Fork Farms, People have to eat and people still want to eat good, fresh food. And, you know, there's a lot of places where people are stuck in place and, you know, the opportunity to grow their own food right there on site has been a blessing for them. And so we're, we're really lucky that we get to help them with that. And was there a big disruption? What did you see in terms of the supply chain? Because that's what I've been hearing from earlier conversations I've had with folks as well. Well, for us on the manufacturing side, we, again, we're lucky we do all of our manufacturing in the U.S. And actually, we do it within a 100-mile radius of our office in Wisconsin. So it really is a an American-made product, a Wisconsin-made product. And a lot of our manufacturers had to go to half production time because they have to socially distance the assembly lines. And so yeah. that was a challenge. We just had to get through the initial lead time lag that that created. But luckily, we've got a really great set of partners on that side of the business. And you know they were really accommodating. And we kept... Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, some of the, I think we were a benefit to their business because, you know, some people had to slow down their production during this period and ours has been going the other way. And so 
I think that was really good partnership development. And we're just hearing all sorts of reports, though, from the folks that are calling us looking for the hydroponic systems that they are, you know, really feeling the food supply chain disruption side of it, where, you know, we're seeing the reports, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with this too, of all the food that's being tilled under in Southern California and Mexico and places like that. And uh, I think that's really where a lot of these vertical farming organizations, even more broadly, are are really finding a deeper social benefit that they provide, right? Is that we we don't have to stop production. We have that consistency. We have that year-round availability. And, you know, it just has become almost a matter of survival for some people. I mean, we work with some broadline distributors where they're talking about significantly increasing their investment into the their vertical farming programs because they're really feeling it. I mean, on top of, uh, you know, all the COVID stuff, then you also have foodborne illness outbreaks at the same yeah. time right? where we're throwing yeah. away working again. And for us, it's a perfect storm. But again, you feel terrible saying that because you just wish it's uh, it wasn't uh, as necessary as I think it's becoming. So winding the clock back a bit, can you talk a little bit about how you actually got into the world of vertical farming, ag tech, agriculture, you know, wherever you think it's appropriate to start just to set some context for people to, you know, to, to hear the origin story? Yeah, well, I have a, a unique story and I won't give you the all the nitty gritty details, but I actually come from classical music. Seems like in the industry, there's a lot of career refugees. There's a lot of people who found their passion <laughs> through this in a lot of different ways. But you have a similar story too, Harry. So, yeah. uh, no, for me, I love music and I was an opera singer and I moved to New York. That's what I went to school for, moved to New York. And that's where I uh, was first exposed to urban agriculture. And during a summer, I volunteered for a rooftop farm. Really, as being a kid from Wisconsin, I needed something to do during the summer months just to get outdoors a little bit. But the gentleman who had started this rooftop farm had a very cool model. He would grow all this food and all of it ended up, majority of it ended up being donated to the food pantry that was right on the first floor of this building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Yeah. And I just thought that that was cool. I had never seen such a tight ecosystem like that. And to see it in East Brooklyn like that was very cool. I mean, you just could see the impact immediately with the families coming through, getting this fresh food and so that was really inspiring. And at the end of the summer, he let me bring a bunch of the food that I had helped grow back to my apartment. And that was the first time I had ever really eaten what I had grown. Which is wild in, in, in New York City and in Brooklyn. I mean, to even think about the possibility of that happening. I, I grew up in Yonkers and I've lived in, in Greenpoint and Lower East Side as well. So. Exactly. And a kid from Wisconsin where you drive 10 minutes in any direction, you're in the middle of farmland, right? So yeah. it really is wild. And uh, I tell you, that that food I brought home that I grew for me was the transformational piece of this. I mean, it sounds corny. But it's true. I started eating food that I was growing and it completely changed my eating habits. I started eating better. I started feeling better. I started taking better care of myself. I got through some personal stuff that I needed to get through. It just was a really great time in my life. And I think through that process, I had this little aha moment where that blood, sweat and tears when you put your energy into things really can be powerful vehicle for change, personal change, and I think social change. I think as I've done more and more of this work, I've really realized that emotional connection and getting people involved and connected to anything is what ultimately drives behavior. 
in my opinion. And we've seen it now time and time again. But so anyway, to make a long story short, I uh, decided I wanted to do this for more people. So we got involved with New York Public Schools, a couple other groups, got some United Way and New York funding. And just with the other ragtag band of folks, we were really passionate about it and started building rooftop farm soil and hydroponic uh, aquaponic systems, all using what at the time was state-of-the-art technology and in some ways still is. So a lot of the, you know, the vertical rack systems, you know, horizontal tiered system, tower type systems, and they all worked great, but none of the programs that we had were really willing to scale to feed a lot of people. And they were all up for, yeah, build us a, basically a demonstration size thing. They'd use it for education. That was great, but you don't really feel the impact and still, in, until people really get the whole seed to plate experience, right? They grow the food and they get to eat the food, right? And so I did a, a little study to figure out why. And what I learned was that every one of these partners, it came down to the price of the food. So they were reporting that using these systems, again, educationally, it was great, but it was costing them anywhere from three to eight bucks a pound just to grow it, right? And you figure out the energy and the lights and the grow medium and nutrients and the time. And, you know, it can be very expensive to do vertical farming. And so it really put this bug in me to figure out maybe there's a way to do it a little bit better in, in, a, in a slightly different way. And around 2014, and this is after 30 prototypes, Harry, and, you know, flooding the apartment floor. I'm not an engineer and I don't claim to be. So it was, it took me. Trial by fire. Exactly. A lot of trial and error. And, but I stumbled into this really simple idea where if you put a grow light, a particular type of grow light in the middle of a bunch of reflective surfaces that the light will actually bounce around inside that enclosure. And if you build it right, you can dial back the wattage of the bulb by 50 plus percent in order to achieve the same yield outcome compared to other systems. And so that really dropped that energy cost really substantially. And from there, I just listened to the folks we were working with to learn how do we make this thing as easy as possible to use and that was how the technology was born. Labor efficiency and energy efficiency is really what we're all about. So keeping that cost really competitive, you know, we're growing food, you know, commercially now for sometimes less than a dollar a pound, which we think is really good. And our goal through the technology is to utilize it to do the most good, right? So when I moved back home, I worked for Goodwill Industries and Feeding America, both kind of on the, in the hunger relief side of this. And I learned a ton. And I think what I learned was it was such a deep passion that I just had to start the company. And I guess the rest is is history from there. So where does that drive come from? Because you mentioned Goodwill. And something that I thought was also interesting is this idea of having that emotional connection. So is this something that, you know, comes from your family or is this just inspiration you've gotten over the years in terms of like, I sense like a trend of like wanting to do good for the communities and probably on a bigger scale, just for, you know, the betterment of humanity <laughs> as well. So I'm wondering where, where that might come from. Well, I think everybody in the vertical farming industry is trying to do something good. I mean, I know there's, there's obvious profit motivation to, to do it. There's a lot of financial reasons to be in the, in the industry, but we all see the disruptive benefit that this can do, right? For sure. But for me, that's a really good question. I mean, I'll have to hire a shrink and maybe dig into it a little bit. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think part of it is, I, you know, you come into the world, I think everybody 
and you know we can debate this, but I think everybody at their core, you know, is is a social being and wants to fundamentally do good. And I think I've got great parents. You know, I was really luck, lucky on the the parent lottery, and you know, they always encouraged me to to follow my heart. You know, I mean, who lets their kid get into opera? Right. I mean, it's not <laughs> yeah. like we come from a wealthy background, right? It's like, it's not like I grew up in a mansion. So, I mean, it takes a particular parent to, to trust you enough to, to let you go down those paths. And I don't know. I think uh, one thing my dad always says is if your intentions are pure, you know, if you really are true to who you are and what you believe, that you'll end up surrounding yourself with people that you like and you'll end up doing work that's meaningful to you. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Just out of curiosity, what type of opera singer are you? I'm a baritone. Okay. <laughs> yeah, lyric baritone. I sang a lot of Mozart. That was my thing. Yeah, so you always have that as a backup to fall, fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> Although not a lot of people are going to operas these days, so I don't know. Yeah, that's true too. So how did you end up in the in the city? It was on a music contract. I actually, uh, I went to school in Chicago. I went to Northwestern, their music school. They got a great program. And out of school, I ended up with a two-year like young artist contract. It was like a residency program, actually with Opera Tampa. But the whole crew lived in New York. So, you know, the agent, the manager, the, you know, a lot of the people that were involved in the music side, we all lived in New York. And so it was just the natural place to be. And along with that, I could do other things. I mean, you're not doing operas all year round, right? So you'd have these two to three month breaks in between the opera. And so I'd, you know, do uh, voiceover gigs or theater gigs or, you know, I'd, I'd try to get into movies and stuff like that. So <laughs> it was fun. It was yeah. a great time in my life. Yeah. Any of your voiceovers floating around the internet somewhere? Yeah, I'm sure you can find them. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you where to look, though. <laughs> what was your impression? As a, um, It's funny because I live in Minneapolis now, but I grew up in Yonkers in New York, and I've lived in L.A., so just both coasts, and now I'm in the Midwest, and you were grew up in Wisconsin. So what was your just first impressions of New York City? First impression was it was dirty and huge. I mean, the... The biggest thing I think that struck me immediately is that when I moved there, I, I lived in Inwood, which is way oh, up. Yeah. For the listeners that don't know, that's way on the top of Manhattan, but you're basically in the Bronx. Yeah. And uh, it's a very Dominican heavy community, right? So I moved yes. in and I was the minority. And coming from Wisconsin, where I was white people everywhere, being the minority was a really incredible experience. I mean, just really alters your perspective in a great way. So a lot of good mafungo and uh, other, good, <laughs> other good Dominican dishes up there that I miss. So yeah, I love mafungo. That's great. Well, it's interesting because you you got to see both perspectives. And you know, as as you were talking now about agriculture, I mean, coming from Wisconsin, you think agriculture, you think farm, you know, big farms, and then you go into the city and you just see how everyone is so condensed into one area and even in places like new york city you do have like these deserts where people don't have access to fresh food and it's all they have is the bodega at the corner so you know i imagine you know can you speak to maybe seeing that dichotomy in terms of like and how that may, may have influenced you know some of the work you're, you're now doing oh it's huge i mean there's poverty everywhere but in my community in wisconsin it's very hidden we do a pretty good job 
you know, during the winter, making sure that the homeless are inside and things like that. And with a city the size of New York, it's it's almost an impossible task. And so yeah. you see it everywhere, right? I mean, you see people sleeping on the street, you see the food lines, you see it. And to see it is what really, I think, first turned me on to the idea of volunteering with that urban farmer that I had mentioned. It just uh, really hard to wrap your head around coming from privilege. I mean, I'll admit that I, you know, I, I didn't come from a wealthy family, but I, we certainly didn't starve. I mean, we were never in a hurting position. So that was big. And then when I really started to dig into the industry, I learned how broken the food system really is. I mean, 60% of all the food that we're eating as Americans is ultra processed, right? And we know yeah. Through all of these clinical studies, that ultra-processed food is directly linked to increased mortality due to all sorts of chronic diseases, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke. And if you're in poverty, what are you eating, right? You're, you're buying food based on price and based on convenience, right? Because yeah. generally you're working a lot of jobs, you're struggling to figure out how to make all the ends meet, and you don't have time to, you know, cook a lot of fresh food and and all of this processed food is really, really affordable. And look at what we grow. You know, we grow corn and soy and all this stuff that's easy to be processed. That's the stuff that's subsidized by the government. I mean, we, we all know the story. So, you know, I think the food system is literally killing people and it's disproportionately killing people in poverty. And that to me is wrong. That is not okay. So how do you take vertical farming technology and drop it into areas where you're going to move the needle there the fastest? And that's really the whole idea behind the company. And, and believe it or not, some of the largest food deserts in the country are in rural communities, which is crazy to me. The people who are growing food in this country are the ones that are disproportionately starving. So, you know, we're actually working with a lot of healthcare systems that serve rural populations to figure out, all right, let's let's put vertical farming systems in the rural schools and in the rural clinics and in these places so that we can start building food system resiliency where right where people live. And it's, it's really, it's really working. You know, we're really having a lot of, a lot of luck with that. Yeah. I think part of this is also just educating people in terms of like what the challenges are and how the different variations of vertical farming can fit a wide variety of needs because I think when people initially come into it, they think of like the the historical model of like you know the big factory with like the tall towers and and like that's all that vertical farming is. But when I had a, a conversation with Virginia Emery of Beta Hatch and she's doing insects for <laughs> for feed and you know and that's vertical you know that's indoor farming as well. So it's just and then I I spoke to the folks at Smallhold who are doing mushrooms and so it's really interesting to kind of see the variety of what's happening but specifically for what you're doing with pork farms can you just kind of talk through what the initial models you you touched on it briefly like what what the model is but for folks who don't know what is the actual product and what are the use cases for it yeah yeah sure so we're in our fourth generation commercial generation of the system first one was made out of stainless steel and cost $12,000 so we only sold eight of those um <laughs> But it's grown uh, pretty quickly since then. I think the, the fourth generation of the product we launched earlier this year, and there's already, I, I want to say, 100 or two out there. So for us, the idea is let's put a farm in a box and let's make it so easy to use that anybody can be a farmer. And so the Flex Farm is a product that grows highly perishable foods. So we decided to focus the grow environment on 
things that we're going to provide the fastest ROI and the fastest nutrition outcome for customers. So the way I explain it is that potatoes don't really work in indoor farming right now commercially. It's regionally all over the country. They're cheap to ship. They're really dense. It's a storage crop. We have year-round availability, all of it, right? Now, why are we going to grow it indoors, right? It doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. But leafy greens, your lettuces, spinach, all your herbs, soft fruits like strawberries, these are the things that have a lot of value to a local food system. So that's really what we focused our design on. Now, we've had partners, especially on the educational side, teachers love playing around with things. So they'll grow kumquats and apple tree starts and pumpkins and all sorts of weird stuff in it. And wow. it works. I mean, they've had success. If you're really looking to feed people, we try to push people into these highly perishable products. So it fits in about the size of a standard refrigerator, about three feet by three feet. It's about as tall as I am, five and okay. a half to six feet tall. But it has in it 288 plant positions. And so it grows 20 to 30 plus pounds of food every 21 to 28 day cycle. So a lot of that's dependent on what you're growing, the varieties you choose. But, you know, you can see how 20 to 30 pounds, it's a serious food production system. I mean, we're not talking about tabletop unit or something that is more for for hobby purposes, right? These are for people who who really want to feed people. And what we find is that, like an educator, they'll partner with us because there's so much intrinsic educational value with something like this. But also there's a serious impact that they can make on the lunch line. And over the years, we've figured out how to, when you talk about use cases, we've really templated out for a lot of these industries ways that we can break some of the farm to table paradigms that have existed. So one example is I ran a farm to school program when I was at Goodwill, and it was really hard to figure out how to get local food on the lunch line, just because a lot of these schools use a third party food provider, and it can be hard to navigate the food safety side of it. And just it's overwhelming for the food service director. So it was hard to to implement. But we've been able to temp create templates with our system that creates a really clear and easy pathway to get this food on the lunch line in a consistent, safe, easy way. And it doesn't require us to reinvent the wheel, right? We have it. It's worked. It's been approved by some of our best food service partners like Chartwells, Aramark, Taher Food Service, you know, folks that they've been doing a long time. And the collateral benefit is that a lot of these schools then they know how to do it. And so it makes it then easy for them to start to bring in other local food products into their program as well. So that's a lot of what we do is we really see ourselves being a learning organization. First and foremost, the agricultural technology that we have is the vehicle on how we get there. But really who we are at our core is we're a group of people very focused on our social mission and providing as much value as we can back to the partners, right? So, you know, another example is with assisted living facilities, right? We develop programs that bring a lot of purpose to the work of running a flex farm to the residents, right? So how do we have these seniors who are there living, get as much value and sense of purpose and love for this indoor farming program that they possibly can, right? So, you know, that entails cooking lessons and activities that they can do with the staff there and uh, ways to share the food into the community. And, you know, all of these ideas that, frankly, we didn't come up with. A lot of the initial go-to-market for this product was, is this something that you could use? I mean, we didn't, I mean, there was nothing else like it at the time. You know, what I tell a lot of people is it's almost like, you know, I'm not trying to equate us to Apple, but it's a little bit like having the Apple II in the eighties. People were like, yeah. I have a typewriter. <laughs> Why do I need like a personal computer? That's twice as expensive. Or the Lisa. Any sense. Right. Exactly. 
So for us, it's a lot of we're educating the market, right? It's a part of learning organization, educating the market, what this can really do for them and the value it can bring. And I would say the majority of our growth as a company is organic. It's we found that one partner and they loved it and they have been referring us to people ever since then. It's been this giant spiderweb effect, very grassroots, very person to person. Food is really personal to people, and and we've learned that you can't control it, right? You can't force them into the K-cup model, right? If you want to use your grandma's seeds that are heirloom from your backyard, you have to be able to do that, right? It's the right thing to do. Food justice and culture has to play a real significant role in who we are as stewards of a better food system, right? And you've also, can you talk a little bit about the curriculum package that you offer as well? Because I think that's an important part of, of what you guys are offering. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff that we're constantly building, right? We and and that's stuff that we provide at little to no cost to the customers, right? So for us, we want you to use our technology. We want it to be the best in the world at what it does. But in terms of all that wraparound programming, we want to make sure that these things are used not just for the next couple of years, but for the next couple of decades. And that's how we do it, is we do it through the underlying programming that we provide. So right now we have a 28 lesson plan curriculum, if you will, that's been used all the way K through 12. Actually, there's been some community colleges and universities that, that have used it too. We've got some learning modules that are video that you kind of click through and learning modules uh, really focused on community college space. We really think that you know, the future needs farmers, but it needs a different type of farmer than in the past, different types of farmers. I mean, we need more of the same to a certain degree, but we need different types of farmers. And so how do we attract the smart, innovative people that are going to be able to think differently and and encourage them to enter into the space. Uh, so that's something that we're really uh, invested in and care a lot about. We've got, again, programmatic stuff, application-based uh, things where, well, what else can I do with this, right? Well, there's a whole set on if you want to grow food and sell it, right? So instead of a school growing food and eating it on the lunch line, how do they start a little junior achievement program or entrepreneurial yeah. program with their system and grow basil and sell it to the local restaurant for 10 bucks a pound, right? Awesome. And then they everyone goes on a field trip or they buy band uniforms or... Better and probably healthier than the Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> no offense to the Girl Scouts <laughs> right, organization. Yeah. But <laughs> it feels a little better, right? And a great, great model that we have is... Um, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, at-risk programs that run the system and they'll sell the food. And actually the teacher will use the income to buy breakfast, like a free breakfast wow. program for these kids who are usually truant. And, you know, it's that sort of stuff. It just feels really good. And um, it's what helps you get out of bed every morning, you know? Yeah. And then I've seen that now, I guess it's bigger organizations that have seen the benefits of the flex farms now are doing the, the multi farms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a pretty simple idea. We figured out a way to daisy chain the systems together really easy. So instead of having to take care of eight individual flex farms, we tie them together, put them on one larger pump, and then you take care of one centralized reservoir that feeds all of these systems. And really what that is, is to encourage people to grow to scale, right? Grow to form fit what your need is. And so we have a lot of partners That'll reach out and say, okay, this is how much of this product that we go through, build us a farm that will make it so that we don't have to buy that stuff ever again, you know? And what we find, which is interesting, is we usually encourage them to bake in an extra 15 to 30% because when people are growing it and they start to see the quality that can be produced from locally fresh, you know, clean food, 
the consumption rate inevitably goes up pretty significantly. And that's one of the big value propositions to the fruits food service industry is that if they can get people eating more fresh food, that's better for their bottom line. Do you see a mix in terms of the consumers? Is, is And you mentioned schools, you mentioned uh, retail, restaurants. Do you have resident personal folks put in it? Is it suitable for residences as well? Absolutely. We've had communities, you know, little neighborhoods, like three houses will buy one together. And it's on wheels, right? So it's not hard to roll it from one house to the next. And uh, <laughs> Or one person's really into it, and so they'll take care of it, but then they'll share the food. I mean, the one thing I'll tell your listeners is that this thing puts out a lot of food. You got to be ready because it's like bringing your outdoor raised bed indoors is really what I tell people. You know, I mean, this isn't going to be like six basil plants on, but you're going to have to freeze your pesto if all you're growing is basil. (laughs) So, but a lot of people love that. You know, they want to have that year round consistency, the year round quality. I mean, most people don't know a really good let's say lettuce, a really good head of lettuce stored correctly, fresh, if it's fresh from the farm, it should last three or four weeks in the fridge and still be ready to eat good. I mean, how many times do you go to the grocery store and you're picking out the garbage from the little clamshell that you bought the day after you bought it? I mean, that's because it's been in transit for almost three weeks. You know, It's, it's not right. It's just, you know, you're paying so much for that product and the quality needs so much work. So... Once you, we create lettuce snobs as part of what I think we do, which (laughs) that's good or bad, but a lot of people, they say, all right, now that I'm eating the good stuff, I'm never going back to the bad stuff. So have you found certain varieties that are more popular that people are experimenting with? Yeah, people love, they love wow factor a lot of times. So we've got a couple varieties that we recommend that have like really deep color uh, that people love or different flavors. You know, we've got a lot of experimentation people love to do with basils. You know, you can get lemon basil or, you know, a citrus basil or purple colors. I mean, there's just the, the amount of variety of seed, if you aren't familiar, will shock you. I mean, there are thousands of lettuce types alone out there. I mean, not to mention the gamut, mints. I mean, chocolate mint, right? I mean, most people don't even know that that's a thing. It's yeah. delicious, right? I mean, that's why restaurants love it, right? Is that they, you know, a high-end restaurant, you know, a cafeteria, they'll put this in and all of a sudden they have an offering that no one else in town has because they can't get it. You can't buy it from your, you can't get chocolate mint off the back of the truck. It's not going to happen. So all of a sudden you have this significant value add where you're providing something that that is really exclusive to you, which people love. So I imagine there's been a lot of iterations because you're at the fourth generation with where you're at now. What have you learned along the way? And are have the improvements been towards just making it as self-sustainable as possible and just easy, easy to maintain? I would say that's number one. It's really been a customer's first type approach for us is, you know, let's talk to people and be continuously learning. Again, learning organization, constantly learning. How do we make this thing work better for you? How do we, what are your pain points? What do you not like about it? And, or, or what do you struggle with? I mean, whatever it is, we want the feedback and we've really tried to take that feedback to heart. And I'll tell you, Harry, every dime that we've made in the company, we've put back into innovation. I mean, Mm. no one has, there's been no, we are a for-profit company, but we really act like a nonprofit in a lot of ways. I mean, we we have shareholders, but they, they understand what we're trying to do and they're willing to wait on the return in order to see something bigger than any one of us happen. And it's bigger than me. I mean, I was the the idiot that started the whole thing, but (laughs) like, but 
I got, there's a lot of other people to blame at this point, right? I mean, I can't claim all the development and, and, and certainly not any of the success that we've had. I mean, all the way from the business development to the, you know, the product development and everything in between. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of smart people that, that we've roped into this. You know, I would say for us, the biggest things that we've learned from customers are they want the ability to have it be as easy as possible, but they also want to be able to bake in complexity if they want. So okay. like an FFA teacher, Future Farmer of America teacher may not want this thing to only take five minutes a week right? They might want the kids to spend a couple hours on it a week. So how do we do that, right? Well, okay, here's the way that you strip out some of the automation and make it a bit more manual and more applicable to some of the other systems that these kids may run across if they decide to get into the business. So there's there's a lot of that work that we've done, but the biggest upgrades from generation three to generation four was uh, actually on the cleaning side. People hate cleaning. Generation three had this snapping gasket mechanic that was really nice because you could easily pull different plants out. You could do different sizing and things okay. like that. But, you know, really they were tough to clean. You know, there were a lot of little grooves in it where you had to you know, either soak them and things like that. And we decided to completely do away with that. And we instead moved towards a, a panel model where this panel is removable and it's the size of a dinner plate. So it fits in any residential or commercial dishwasher. It's made out of a food grade plastic that's dishwasher safe. The cleaning of this, you have to cl- do a deep clean once every three to six months. Okay. And the clean itself used to take about 90 minutes and now it takes about 15 minutes. And so for us, that was the biggest thing. Also on the assembly side, our light tower internally, it used to be made out of uh, powder coated steel LEDs. And we moved towards a different LED design where it actually comes pre-assembled now. And so the goal is just to have people focus on the thing that's going to build that emotional connection right? That's really the highest level goal that we have. And so how do you do that? Get them up and running as quickly as possible. Have them have a lot of success for their first crop. Teach them how to experiment intelligently so that they continually have success. Build in programming that has a lot of staying power. Make them feel really good about what they're doing and the network that they're a part of. We do a lot of community building as an organization. There's like a Facebook group of users where um, you can get in and talk to other users. So instead of calling us, Hey, how are you using this thing in this yeah, context? Better coming from somebody else, right? Because they're the ones with that experience. I mean, we run our own units, but it's limited, right? I mean, against the 500 plus installations that are out there, I mean, we got to leverage that knowledge that's out there, right? And bring that into the, the ecosystem that we're building as a company. And the community that you're building, because that was something that I was going to ask you about. Like if, if you've started to see and, and started to, you know, get all the customers talking to each other and, you know, there's, there is something that happens when you're all feeling like you're, you're working, you know, you've all got the same product or, or variation of it and you're excited because now people are sharing success stories about they're growing, what they're trying, experimenting. And it, it's interesting when that starts to happen and they start to have conversations and help themselves out as well without waiting for like a rep to jump in and answer a question. You'll know it's taken off when like they're helping themselves and and answering their own questions. Well, exactly. And now that's the information that we pull when we say, okay, this person, they solved this problem, which is amazing, but we can make it even more intuitive by improving the product, right? (laughs) Okay. You can start to pull information out of the community, or you can say, hey, a lot of people are asking this question on the community. We can do like, this is a stock thing that comes included now, right? So always learning and trying to just amplify that voice. But you're absolutely right. I mean, our partner, we call our customers partners because they really are, right? I mean, we 
you know, we're trying to continually check in with people and, and make sure they're having a good experience. And, you know, I would say that's also in a lot of ways our sales force. I mean, we've got all these folks out there who are having a good time. And it's always been our theory that if we take really good care of them, you know, hopefully they take care of us. And I think that's by and large been the case. Can you talk a little bit about growing the team as a, as a new CEO and, and some of the challenges you've had and, and even thinking about like when's the right time and who's the right person? Because they're obviously important as you grow the organization. Yeah, it's a great question. Timely, actually, because we're in the middle of a hiring process, actually. So if any of your listeners are looking to get into the business, you know, give us a call. You know, I think in the beginning, I didn't do this as well as we are now. And there's, you know, a long way for, for me to go, which I think is true for everybody. But I think our focus has been on really helping people understand what this is on the front end, really helping people understand who we are as an organization, because now we do have and it takes a long time to do this, but we do have a real good sense of our culture and it's continually evolving and growing. But in the beginning, you just, you don't, don't even really know what your identity is. And I think being able to share that identity in a strong way will help people almost self-select out, which I think is an important part of that process. Help people understand if this isn't right for them, make it very clear what's critical culturally, but also the team is evolving the culture as we speak, right? I mean, we are who we are as people. And so I think the key is to hire people who diversify your team skill set and diversify the opinions, but also really jive with the kind of key behavioral aspects that you want out of your work culture. So, uh, you know, things like humility and things like the ability to, you know, feel forward fast and to be inclusive in your thinking. And, you know, a lot of these qualities don't come naturally to everybody. That's okay. It just means that maybe, maybe it's not the best fit. And for us, you know, we're really looking to build out a team of people who don't necessarily think all the same, which I think is it's sometimes hard to hard to wrangle that. But I think the value is that you get uh, really strong opinions sometimes about things. And, uh, you know, there are times where sometimes I have to say, you know, we're not all going to agree on this. So this is the way that we're yeah, going to yeah. go. Generally speaking, you know, if you hire a lot of smart people, we can logically come to consensus. And I think that's been a huge milestone for us is getting to that point where we can really sit around, not necessarily agree with each other, but listen to each other, not just listen to be heard, like not speak to be heard, but to be understood kind of thing. Uh, Those sort of qualities don't come naturally, I don't think, to organizations. You have to be really intentional about that work. Yeah, and what's important, some of the things you talked about are actually the core values that you've listed on the website. It says here, empowerment, integrity, unconventional, relentless, humility, and inclusive. So I think, you know, when people come to the site, they it's already speaking to the type of culture you're looking to build there. Yeah, and none of that was my idea, right? Like, <laughs> that's the thing is people people they look at the leader of the organization and they're like if we, if it's a success he's a genius and if it's a failure he was never going to succeed to begin with right but the reality is that you just surround yourself with people smarter than you yeah yeah and they have good ideas like hey you have to have a very clearly defined mission statement you have to have a very clearly defined set of values and that's what you hire for right and they give you these tips and if you you know don't have such a big ego that you can't acknowledge that that's a huge learning opportunity. Again, the whole learning organization thing. I think that's been core to our success. Is there um, someone 
in the space as the company has grown in the vertical farming industry or just someone in business that you uh, admire or have, have drawn inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, everybody. I think the whole thing is inspiring. I mean, I remember way back when I was getting started, there was a gentleman in Milwaukee named Will Allen who was running Growing Power, which is a nonprofit where he started just growing food and flowers with at-risk teens in his neighborhood. And that model exploded. The idea of, you know, how do we use uh, urban agriculture as a mechanism to, you know, not just empower communities and to have great programming, but also to sustain the nonprofit. I mean, he was selling food to so that he didn't have to go and get donations every year to keep the program running. And I think that sort of social entrepreneurship was really inspiring to me. You know, the Cornell University puts out incredible information. You know, I I didn't go to school for this, right? So I had to self-teach yeah, yeah. myself grow food hydroponically, right? So that lettuce handbook that Cornell put out was the original <laughs> gospel for me, right? I mean, I read that thing 300 times. And then you learn as you go, right? I mean, part of it is there's it's very iterative. But I mean, I remember when uh, Ed Harwood at Aero Farms was getting started. I watched that. I remember Nate's story with uh, ZipGrow and that whole thing. I mean, I've been following everybody and all the work is important and inspiring, and I think there's room for more, to be honest with you. I think this sort of work is still in its infancy in a lot of ways. I think it's growing very quickly and exponentially, and I think we need to do it. We need to get it right, and I think you know, working together is going to be the key, and that's something that we're just starting to do as a company, You know, is you know, find partnerships in industry, and that's something that I really want to do more of as we, as we grow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well. Like, What's been your experience as you've started to engage with other folks in the vertical farming industry or in, in the ag tech world? Well, I think it's been great. I mean, everybody, I mean, there, there are a lot of new startups in this space. We're actually, um, yeah. we just formed a partnership with a, a venture capital group named Titletown Tech, okay. a joint venture between the Green Bay Packers and Microsoft. And we were lucky enough to get offered a place at their table. And, and so we're, that's actually where we're moving our offices to. And they actually have a much deeper understanding of what's happening kind of in the, the emerging side of the industry, because they're hearing just all these pitches. I think they've said, they told me they did, they've, they've heard 450 wow. ag tech pitches since they started just like a year to 18 months ago. Right. So They've heard a lot and I've, and I've through them, I've learned a little bit about the state of the space and it is growing quickly. I mean, I will say that, you know, there's a lot of people entering the space, but I will also say that a lot of the people that have been here and a lot of the people that have been working on it for a long time are in a great position. And I think, you know, for me, the key is to figure out how to find the strategic partnerships that are going to grow the mission right? That's really what it comes down to for us yeah. is that we want to stay really true to this idea of using food as medicine and using agriculture technology as a vehicle for economic development and as a vehicle for social change in a way that improves our healthcare system and then improves our educational system. And I think if we find folks that uh, you know are willing to partner with us to help us get there, there's a lot of ways that that can go, right? That leaves yeah. a pretty wide open sphere for partnership, you know? So I think it's easier said than done, but that's going to be our, our focus. Very, very cool. What's a hard question you've had to ask yourself lately or recently? You know, I think I'm talking a lot about the mission today, but the reality is that we do run a business. We've got people that we employ. We're in the middle of a pandemic and the unemployment rate is high and people are yeah. suffering and, 
you know, there are constant stress factors on, on the business to produce, right? And to sell and to grow and to do all of those things. And, and you know, we've been lucky in that sense, but also that being the day in and day out, you know, working on the ground with customers, growing the business, you know, being in the trenches, sometimes you can lose sight of really why you were here to begin with. And I actually recently had to do a lot of reevaluation personally to reconnect myself with all this. And I think it's going to be an ongoing practice, to be honest, in the business. It's going to require me to ongoingly check back in with that part of this. And for the team too, too, I mean, we're actually doing that work as a team because it is easy to get caught up in you know, the next person that you're serving and the next uh, yeah. deal that's going to come together and the next installation, you know, that we're building. And you got to extrapolate yourself out of that periodically. And you have to maintain a laser-like focus of what you're trying to do and why you exist. And that's easier said than done, for sure. You know, I've had to take a hard look as we grow where my gaps are as a leader. So I had some leadership experience at Feeding America and Goodwill. But before then, I was, a you know, running my own little deals a as an artist. And so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading and I've done a lot of self-education, but, you know, also sitting down with people and trying to really get honest answers from them of where are your gaps and being self-critical in that way is, is also hard, but really important work. I think I'm better for it. And I think the team is and the company is, but yeah, those, those are, it's hard to look at yourself (laughs) and realize that the way that you were doing things is not the necessarily the right way. And, Part of it is as the organization grows, you have to grow as well, and, and things can't stay the same. But also, you know, the business will beat you up. You know, startups are difficult, you know, and I think you also have to be gentle with yourself at the same time, and that's a hard balance to strike. Well, I think what's important is that you realized that what got you here won't get you there, and you have to continuously look to do that self-improvement, improve, up-level your skill set. And, and at some point you actually start hiring people who are smarter than you and then just not feeling like that that's overwhelming for you or, or not intimidated by that. Being able to let it go, right? Yeah, As a founder, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes the hardest thing is just being able to let it go. Yeah, I can't explain. I, it's hard to explain how, how deep that difficulty is. Yeah, it's a baby, you know? I mean, you've been nurturing yeah. this thing for years, so. So as we wrap up, what's just what's the what's the future look like as you, as you think out, you know, next couple of years? What, what has you excited? A lot of things. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is that we're really looking at scale now. I mean, I think up until this point, we've been growing at a really aggressive rate. And the market response to our work has been really strong. And and I think now we're in a phase where we're really trying to figure out how do we exponentially move that into new markets and and to affect new people and do that in innovative ways and creative ways that really support the mission. And so some examples are we brought on some channel partners that are going to help us find those types of that type of work, right? So people who can help connect into the healthcare space more concertedly uh, and help us add value to the educational sector in the times of COVID, right? And how to work in the food service space to, you know, get out in front of the foodborne illness issue really intentionally, really start to build a better food system than what we have now. So, you know, growing the business exponentially, but also doing it in in an intentional way. And I think 
it's exciting to see the number of people now that are involved that are on board to help us do that. Well, it, it's really exciting to hear your journey, your personal journey, and even coming from a background that most people wouldn't expect would lead to a career <laughs> in vertical farming. So, but I think like, you know, like polymaths, right? They have so many different hobbies. And I think I'm sure a lot of what you learned just growing up in Wisconsin, living in New York City, you know, studying opera, just all these little facets of what makes you you, I, I think is what makes you adds to your personality and I think enhances you as a leader in, in terms of this company. And I, and I think that's what you, you know, you can draw on a couple of different things and you, you're not just classically trained in ag tech business. And so I think that colors the way you approach your business, I would imagine. Yeah. And I think it keeps us differentiated. It makes us not as competitive against some of the other people in the space. You know, we're doing yeah. different types of work because of that. And, and hopefully, you know, when doing podcasts, I don't stumble over my words as much as maybe <laughs> I because I got some of that theater training. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Classically trained too. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come on the podcast. Hopefully it was a good experience for you <laughs> as your, as your first interview. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate you sharing the story. What's the best way for folks to engage with Fork Farms and, and to connect with you online? Well, the first place is the website. So that's forkfarms.com. So F-O-R-K-F-A-R-M-S.com. And you can also, you know, Google the business and we've got our landline there. And, you know, there are real human beings that answer the phone that live in Wisconsin that, <laughs> that work on the business every day. So give us a call. And yeah, we're looking for partners and we're looking for people that we can help in the space and folks that potentially even want to, you know, work with us to, to propel the work. So any, any interest you have in the business, we'd be happy to talk to you. We'll make sure we'll include all those links in the show notes as well. Thanks again. And hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thanks again to Alex for sharing his inspiring story on everything that's happened with Fork Farms and how we got to this great place with his company. If you want to read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned, please visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. And as a reminder, you heard me read them off at the beginning of the episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As you heard, we'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Stay tuned next week for a very special interview with David Farquhar, making a return engagement from Intelligent Growth Solutions to talk about some of the great new projects that they're working on there. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.